Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of How to Save the World. My name is Tim Batt. I'm Waveney Ward. And we are doing our first ever record by teleconference. We're using the power of the internet to connect with you um, and each other for, for the first time today while we're in lockdown. And we're joined by a very special guest. Uh, he's the host of Fish of the Day, which is on Sunday evenings on 3, a man who has travelled the world many times over for his job, and he's also the father of New Zealand's first baby, Clark Gayford. G'day. Good. Um, where do we place ourselves? Morning, evening? How do we do this on a, in, in podcast world? Yeah, good well, afternoon. Good. We're spanning international day. datelines, so good day, I think. Good day, good day to you, Tim. Good day good to day. you, evening. Uh, Clark, let's um, address it first off because I know that a lot of our listeners will be wondering this: um, is is the prime minister going okay? Is she getting enough sleep? She's she's always been a good sleeper. Um, it's just the hours in the night have been considerably reduced, so most nights are finishing. I don't think we've had a night finished before about 11, sometimes 12 uh, later, um, and then up usually 6, 6.30. I've got this really haunting sort of um, alarm music that will stick with me forever because it's, it, <laughs> it, 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 I just hear it every morning. I'm like, oh, here we go. Yep, good. You get quite a Pavlovian response to it after a while, eh, where it just induces panic. Well, it, it, and she also ended up with a new phone. So it's this new song and it's very much, I associate it with the current situation that we're going through. So it's like the music kicks in and it all comes flooding back. Oh my God. <laughs> COVID! Waking up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Same well, effect I mean, as the simple defence alarm. Because everyone has it right. You have that sort of moment of waking up and the world is a wonderful, serene, peaceful place. And it's like about a second or a second, of ha- a second and a half and then it's like this great big vacuum. Everything goes whoosh. Oh no, hang on, we're in trouble here. Sounds like Neve must be a good sleeper if you're waking up peacefully every morning to an alarm. Oh, she's fantastic. No, she is. She is good. This morning I got up, I went for a run, came back, um, did some other exercises, had a shower, made just into breakfast, and then uh, went down as Neve woke up. You're only gunning for a medal off the back of that, mate. That is good stuff. Um, Clark, we have brought you on, this is a sustainability podcast, uh, yes. to chat about things outside of your family life. Um, you've recently filmed a series for Nat Geo, which we'll talk about in a little bit, which I'm very interested in, called Planet or Plastic, which has got some um, promo clips online. Am I right in saying the series hasn't come out quite yet? Um, just to define it, it's not necess- it's not specifically a series. They've taken me on as an ambassador for a campaign called Planet or Plastic that they've been running for a little while, and they've um, commissioned me to film a, a series of uh, vignettes or stories that will sit on the Nat Geo platform. So they'll play between shows, little short uh, five, ten-minute stories, po- sort of positive stories around uh, good work that people are doing in regards to plastic and rubbish mitigation when it comes to the ocean. Oh, that's so nice because oh. we like to get as much good news on the show as possible. It's important to hang on to the good stories because you've got to give people a little bit of hope. And that's always been the focus of what we've tried to do with our shows and just, just life in general. Because if, if you just hit people over the head with doom and gloom all the time, it's very, very hard to you know, get people engaged to think that actually they can make a difference and there is hope on the horizon. Mm. I found that since the COVID thing, my threshold for bad news has just gone through the floor. I just don't want to hear anything anymore at all. Um, I just I just want to hear the good news. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's great what you're doing. And like the, yeah, I'm also interested in your passion for the ocean because it's been this huge thing for you, right, from when you were a kid. 
Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in Gisborne. There was two ways to go. You got into cars or you got into surfing. <laughs> and uh, I, I took the way of, of surfing and then sort of progressed through to snorkeling and fishing ever since I was um, tiny and grew up in a place called Mahia Peninsula, which is down the coast from Gisborne. And uh. it's just this ideal, idyllic pen, peninsula. And, um, you know, all my formative years were spent there rowing around in small boats, chasing fish and getting up to all sorts of other things. Awesome. <laughs> I think of, I have to say I'm kind of the opposite. I'm not an ocean person. I've always felt the cold and I've, I don't like to get in. I get scared of the things that are in there. And I'm one of, <laughs> <Not> the <things. laughs> I'm one of these people that when I think of the ocean, it's sort of just this blank slate, almost like I'm just focusing on the surface and it's just sort of the thing that's there that gives all of the continents the shape. And yet it's, it's, Apparently, ninety over ninety percent of all life forms we have in, in the Earth are actually in the ocean, and we've hardly explored any of it. And you've, you're right in there. You've spent a lot of your life actually in under the water, getting to know it. It's a totally different place for you. Yeah, and look, and without diving too deep, so to speak, the um, the transformation that I had through sitting on top of the water to Getting in and under the water was just uh, just remarkable. I mean, even in New Zealand itself, where if you go out in a boat and you go fishing, you know you might you might spend a day out, you might see some birds, see some dolphins, and then you might catch fish that are keen on your bait. So your snapper or terakihi or kahawai or kingfish, if you're lucky. Um, and so you think that that is what is underwater in New Zealand, but mm. it's not until you actually get in the water and stick your head under it, and then you go, what are, what are those little fish with funny little barbells on their chins? And what's that big school of something in the distance? And what is that shadow that's following me uh, just on that <laughs> weed line back there? And you realise that it is just remarkable, the, the variety of life that we have. I mean, even our, even our seaweeds and our sea sponges and funny little um, microorganisms that we have, is, it, it, it really is incredible. We are in the Goldilocks zone um, in the world of ocean currents where we've, we have this beautiful, long, sexy bit of coast and very temperate waters that just allow for all of this life. And do you think that, because I'm kind of similar to Wave in terms of my experience and feelings about the ocean are a lot more, it's that <laughs> cool thing to look at over there and on the other side of the beach versus you who basically live out there as much as possible. Do you feel like that for you personally and for other people who are keen um, fishers, it sort of gives you a bit more of an environmental connection? Um, it, absolutely. Oh, 100%. And so that's a kind of the, sort of the ethos of what I try to do with our show because if you can connect people to something, then they'll care about it more. So if you can show them what's out there and and, and how it um, how it is and how, how it survives, then they'll have more of a vested interest in knowing where that rubbish going into the gutter is going to flow out to. And, and it might seem kind of um, uh, almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Two opposites. A, a, a bit of a paradox in the sense that I'm out there catching fish. But the more time that you spend with fishermen and particularly commercial fishermen, a lot of them just end up going down a similar path where they actually they care about their backyard mm. and they care about the water and they care about um, you know the, the abundance of fish life out there. And you actually come across all sorts of people that, and I, I keep coming across these commercial fishermen who've, um, who've spent their life at sea and they've ended up quite um, almost um, uh, introspective in the sense that they do a lot of thinking out on the water, often alone or just with a deckhand, and they've arrived at these quite sort of profound um, positions in their life. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
I, for example, there's a wonderful commercial fisherman down in um, the Hawke's Bay called Carl War, who, um, and if you just at, at face value would think, oh, he's a, a commercial fisherman that goes out and, and trawls fish for market. Well, he he had, um, he had all, he was fishing a whole lot of quota for the man for for another company, and he just got he got over it. He got sick of it. He never got to see his kids. Um, he wasn't earning all that much money, and he saved up and ended up buying his own quota. And he went from catching a hundred tons of fish a year to earning a similar amount of money catching just 10 tonnes of fish a year, and he totally changed his model into selling it to restaurants who really craved sustainable fish. And wow. he started thinking about how to mitigate um, loss of life for seabirds. So he started bringing in all these techniques at the back of his boat to stop um, seabirds um, diving into his nets and losing their life. And then he started experimenting with changing the shape of his net and the mesh of his net so that smaller fish could um, survive and escape and that he would, didn't have such um, high mortality rates. And now he's experimenting with fishing pots so that they do less damage to the ocean floor. And he's just constantly thinking about how he can further lessen his impact and his footprint um, on the ocean. And when you talk Talk to him. He's, he gets quite philosophical about you know about the 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 role that all of us have and the the ecology of the ocean and the way that it is just this wonderful big pattern of nature and how it is that we fit into that. Wow. Yeah. I've I've talked to fisher people before who have said the similar thing. How they feel stuck in their jobs of being able to. They've been fishing over the decades and they've been noticing the size of the fish getting smaller and smaller every every decade. And how this guy who's doing some cool stuff, because one of the things I really wanted to ask you was how, because I struggle with this, how can I as a consumer of fish buy, how do I know that I can buy some fish that's not going to be harmful um, to the planet? Um, well, look, off the top of my head, there is the Good Fish Guide, um, which is available that talks about um, whether fish are from a sustainable resource and how they're caught. I mean, it would be great to see more work done in this space. There's, there's a coast in Canada that you can go to and you can go to a fish market and at the market where the fish are, down the front are these like little QR codes and little pop-up LCD um, displays. And you can go and push on them and a little video will pop up and it'll be, hi, I'm Bob and this is my wife Sue and we fish, uh, this is our family fishing boat and we catch this fish. And it's the actual story of where the fish has come from and the family that has caught it and the methods that they use. And so people have this conscious ability to go and choose where the fish has come from and how it's caught, which is just fantastic. And we're seeing examples of that happening um, all around this place. A, a good friend of mine, owns uh, Coco's Cantina in Auckland. And she had so many customers asking about the sustainability of the fish that they served in their restaurant that she had to strike a deal with um, the fisherman that she used from Lee Fisheries up at Lee, where he would have to take a photo of the fish on the deck of his boat and send it to her. And she would use that photo in the restaurant to show um, customers who asked so regularly about where the fish came from. And that gave Yay! her... Yeah, and so that was consumer-driven choice. I mean, they were very much of that ethos anyway, but they, but here it was consumers asking enough that they had to put, you know, this place, put this thing in place, and then they ended up with this wonderful story and a great um, bit of narrative to tell their customers that sort of enhanced the dining experience. And when you hear stories like that, you go, "That's great." That you know, if we can if we can start being sort of more conscious about where things come from and start asking those hard questions, then it will put a greater value on the fish that is uh, sustainably sourced. And do you get the sense that that is happening around the rest of the industry as well, or are there some really cool 
outliers who are just sort of operating in their pockets. <laughs> there's, there's a generation of people coming through that are trying harder with what they do. And I love nothing better than um, coming across um, great stories. There's a, there's a guy um, sustainably catching hapoka down off the bottom of the um, uh, South Island from Gravity Fishing, a guy called Nate. There's a guy just up in Kapiti who has figured out a way to... Um, cure and freeze blast um, uh, albacore tuna, which he's just line catching um, through the summer months. And he's selling them as a high-end product to restaurants in Wellington. And that's such a small impact on what is, um, you know, quite a, 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 when it's looked after an abundant fishery. And you hear those stories and it's, it's like what we spoke about at the start of this. If you can find things that give people hope or show people that there's a better way, mm. then it has a sort of contagious effect. That is so cool. I've had this experience recently that ties into this a bit. I went hard vegan for like six months and I've sort of eased up on it, especially now that we're in lockdown because I just wanted to make sure I was throwing everything at my immune system. But it's completely um, reset my expectations for paying for stuff like meat and poultry and fish in terms of like I'll go down to the supermarket now and I, I will pay the extra money for a chook that is organic and free range certified um and i wonder if there's going to be a similar thing you know it's sort of like the supply is the supply side is what you're talking about in terms of these innovative fishermen who are coming up with these less harmful ways and the demand is almost i feel like there are a lot of consumers who are being reset and that we don't just expect this dirt cheap product all the time yeah, and I, I guess it, it, there's a there is a trickle down effect, and and obviously we're privileged in having choice, and there is a huge amount of people out there who aren't privileged to have a have a price choice, totally. right? And so they'll always look for those cheaper options. But you know, we've I mean, particularly with fishing, there was a contraction of the industry where we have um, pushed our efforts into big boats, bulk harvesting lots of fish, for example. Um, and we've lost all of that ability to go and buy off, um, you know, Bob or Mary down at the wharf coming in to sell their catch. That just mm. doesn't happen anymore. And, 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 and if there are opportunities like that to, to expand upon or, you know, then, then if there's cheaper options there, um, then people will, will, will flock to it. I don't think it has to be an either or. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like you said, I think there is a trickle down where these sorts of methods will filter. Th you know, it starts with the people who can make those innovative moves and try some cool new things. And then those methods, if they get proven over time, do filter down through the line. Um, so, so this uh, campaign that you have been involved with as an ambassador um, for National Geographic, have they changed their name to NetGeo or are they just cool and given themselves a nickname? That's just, that's just how we abrivet. <laughs> it probably doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so Nat Geo have got this campaign, Planet or Plastic, that you have been mm. shooting um, some little interstitial, some, some, what do you call them? Industry speak, Tim, vignettes. 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 You're smarter already. Uh, tell us about the vignettes, Clark. Uh, well, so, so my TV series has been screening on uh, National Geographic, Asia, Middle East and North Africa. And... Um, we've, we've sort of partnered with them in a, a more official capacity and they ran or they are running a campaign called Planet or Plastic where they've um, approached a few individuals to basically um, uh, come up and present their own way that um, they are either mitigating their plastic use or, or in the way that we've done it is, is going and finding those positive ocean stories of people who are trying to do the right thing 
um, with their use and and by helping to make the world a bit of a better place and to give other people hope. So, um, yeah, we um, basically been asked to just shoot a whole lot of um, find a whole lot of positive stories, which is which has actually been easy. There is a, there are a lot of people out there doing great stuff. Um, and then you, finding the chance to go and and shoot them, and that's actually where we've um, hit a slight um, <laughs> speed wobble, given yeah. that uh, none of us are going anywhere at the moment. Well, yeah, speak to that a little bit because I saw there's at least uh, one of these vignettes, which has been beautifully produced, of you chatting to a guy in Malaysia who is um, well, you can probably speak to this better, but turning waste into a building material. Mm. Just a just a great little story. So there's an island in Malaysia um, called Tiamen Island, and it's you wouldn't expect it when you go through Malaysia because it is. I'll be honest, it is pretty dirty in places. It seems run down, and it, and it feels overfished. And then you take a, a ferry ride. I think it was out from the Rompin district to this little island called Tiamen Island. It's actually been a reserve for thirty years, and the coral diving out there was some of the best coral diving I've. Um, experience just about anywhere, just beautiful big plate corals, hard soft corals, amazing fish life um, from this place that's been carefully preserved. But they've got a problem on the island, um, as happens through much of Asia. They have so many tourists going through and they have such a um, disposable lifestyle that they just have all of these plastic bottles and rubbish and waste coming onto the small island. And uh, they had no real ability to get rid of it. They have these horrible big barges that they sort of um, take it away. And, and, and uh, as I spoke to before, there is a generation of people coming through who are just saying enough. We don't want this anymore. And so these young guys had come up with this way. They actually um, uh, sourced through New Zealand. It was a New Zealand company, this um, sort of mini glass crusher. And the glass, and because of all the glass bottles that end up there, and they crush the bottles down into like, it comes out like sand and they bag it all up and they use it now as a substrate for their, all their concrete. So their entire wow. building was made out of crushed glass from the bottles that had come over and been drunk by tourists. They're using it as a substrate, as a, as a proper um, building building product. And then they're making these cool little, um, so they make a, a substrate concrete base and then they'll set glass bottles into the top of it. And then they use those to make new coral gardens because you can just take a bit of coral and you jam it in the top of a bottle. Wow. And it starts to grow like a flower. It just propagates and carries on. And before long, those bottles and concrete disappear completely under whole new coral gardens. So they're, they're growing all of these coral gardens out the front of their place. Um, and, they're just do, and they're just taking all the plastic and they're dividing it into its different grades and they're melting it down and turning it into products to not only sell back to the tourists, so you can pick up a, a memento, a satchel or a passport holder or, or something, but there's a, there's a, a lesson and, a, and an explanation that goes to the people that are buying it. So it's sort of an education process as well. That is incredible. I didn't, um, in the video or the vision that I saw, I don't think it gets into the coral growth aspect of um, the little boxes that they're building. That's amazing. Yeah, and it was just a, a, a great little way because they wanted to put something back into the water that, um, you know, wasn't going to rust and put leach, uh, leach um, you know, bad things into the water. And through this way, it's a fairly inert product with glass. And by growing mm. these things out, it just became this great little um, uh, problem solver. That's amazing. Awesome. Do you mm. do you get any, are people like picking up glass off the off the beach now, like for this guy? Because I imagine it sort of turned this thing which was worthless rubbish into something that has a bit of value now. It's had a so it was just this uh, one guy is a crazy sort of surfy dude. I was good surf on that island, um, and he just 
uh, he just basically had enough and he started it. But it's having a spillover effect. And so the other dive operators around now have um, policies around plastic use and then they recycle back down and sort into colours. And so it's definitely had a ripple effect down the beach because everyone's awesome. understood that they have to look after what is their best um, advertisement to tourists to make them want to come there. Yeah, tourism gets a lot of flack, but that is one thing it's definitely got going for it, eh? It gives you a massive financial incentive to make things look pretty, and generally that means sort your rubbish out. Yeah, and, and people people want to know the story these days as well. And so, you know, if you've got a positive um, story to tell, then that becomes part of your experience. Mm, yeah, we've really been disconnected for so long from the stories of all of our stuff and our experiences, and so just to be able to connect with that is really, really cool. It's awesome. Good job. Have you always been environmentally aware? Like, when did that? When did those awarenesses sort of start popping up for you? Um, oh, I, I, that's a, a, a good question. I, it, it's, the funny thing is, is like my, <laughs> um, I just I, I look back to some of the things my dad did, and I grew up on a farm, um, kind of rurally in Gisborne, and we never really had had a whole lot of much of anything. And um, it, it, it just the way that, you know, everything had to go a little bit further and we were always taught not to waste things. And then whenever we went to the beach, my dad was always picking up glass and I remember being embarrassed about it, you know, oh, hmm. dad, don't pick up the rubbish. And, and it's funny how that sort of thing, you know, rubs off and you come full circle and you go, actually... He was, he was, you know, good on him for doing that mm. and, and, and what a good thing to do. And so you just, yeah, I guess it, 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 it rubs off. And it's just, it's like you say when we're talking about tourists before. If you want tourists to come here, you want them to go down to the beach and it to be clean and awesome. And, and it, New Zealand's 100% pure um, image has to be more than a poster. We have to, we have mm. to walk the talk. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it seems to be a shock for so many people who come here from overseas and actually now live here or have spent time here, where they start to connect and realise that it's it's you know a bit more of a facade than it than it first seems. Um, yeah, it's uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rag on New Zealand. I'm, I'm definitely not gonna go down that path. I, I just call. look if it was a school report, there'd just be a little line in there talking about room for improvement. Uh, and and living up to its potential, it's. I mean, and and again, just coming back to that hope thing. I mean, our oceans, for example, are incredibly resilient, and we've already proven that if we leave things alone, they bounce back so quickly. And our environment can can function in much the same way. It's just the will of making things making things happen. I I wonder, given the state of stay indoorsness that is going on. Uh, around the world currently, and we're seeing all those images of the Taj Mahal with clear skies through to the was it the Himalayas for the first time in thirty years, yeah. and seeing reports that Auckland's air quality has improved by ninety percent. And I wonder if that will help lift the fog in people's minds to start demanding better long term. Like if it comes rushing back and we suddenly notice it because it's gone, then will that make us actually start making more noise at council and more noise at government to to do to do better? It's anyone's guess. It really is. Which way it's oh, going to go? Humans. Clark, I, I I wanted to ask you because I think you'd be in one of the most uniquely qualified positions in the country to talk about this. Whenever we've had um, uh, politicians or budding hopeful politicians on this uh, podcast series before. We talk about direct action, getting in touch, signing online petitions, writing letters to a member of parliament, that sort of thing. Can you speak to the effectiveness 
either that it has it or, or lack thereof of getting in touch with MPs? Tim, I can do better than that. I'll give you I'll give you a, a real world um, example that that real time that affected love an anecdote affected change. Stand by, pull up a chair. Um, so every night when Jacinda comes home, she I always joke that there's three people in our relationship: uh, her, me, and the cabinet papers, because they are <laughs> relentless and they will follow us. They've even met us in transit lounges in Australia. Like they they'll knock on the door at nine o'clock at night, and there's a man in a suit and he hands over a briefcase, and oh, I gosh. I walk down the hallway, and it's my job to weigh it, and I judge its content based on its weight, and I'm like, oh, it's not good tonight. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there is, there is someone in her office that curates letters from school kids because um, there's hundreds and thousands of them that get sent in. And a selection Oof. are always put into the cabinet um, uh, folders. There's a little section of, of just for a bit of, you know, entertainment. And I enjoy going through all the kids' letters that came in. And from the very beginning, there was letter after letter after letter. There was never a cabinet bag that did not have a letter from a kid in it talking about plastic bags, mm. and there was always a picture of a turtle and always a story about turtles dying. And and these are letters from kids who, of their own volition, um, could write about any topic um, through to, to, to Parliament, were choosing to write about plastic bags. And I know that that had an effect. Like, it really did. It played, it played an important role in making that decision to ban plastic bags. And it was the power of kids writing those letters and just being that consistent theme that, that came through that showed that, you know, there was definite um, will of, of people, younger people, to, to want change. Mm. That is very cool. And what I'm hearing is that we need to brainwash a bunch of kids with our um, political <laughs> aims. and <laughs> Well, it's funny because I, I remember asking... Well, I started getting suspicious. I was like, is this a campaign by teachers? I I asked a few teachers and a a few other people connected to the education centre and they said, no, absolutely not. No, they they always, you know, asked, gave kids carte blanche on whatever they wanted to write about. And that was was the topic that resonated with them. That is is impressive. Yeah. Definitely not Greenpeace activists just using their left hand (laughs) and a box of crayons to make it look authentic. Perhaps it wasn't from children. Well, yeah, either way, we we got uh, single-use plastic bags banned, so I'm okay with yeah, the ends justifying aye. the means. Yeah. But it was, you know, politics is the will of people at the end of the day, and um, it, you know, it, 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 those sort of pressure campaigns they 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 do trickle up, but it, it's it's not easy because everyone's got a campaign and a and a thing, you know, like I. I ended up in this this role and I didn't realise that part of the role was I was going to be lobbied by all sorts of people who I barely knew who started thinking they could communicate through me and I just had to learn how to filter filter it out and switch it off. And But the, the thing, I mean, most of these people were passionate about the things that they were into um, and nearly all of them had a very valid and good point to make. But you realise mm. that there are a lot of people vying for um, for their causes out there and so it's very difficult to, to get everything to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of causes out there. Com- conversely, Clark, I recall um, oh, a few years ago now because uh, y- you go back to school days with my husband, um, and you guys have served together here and there. And uh, he heard you on the radio radio talking about um, the container deposit scheme, and he thought, which is what we're into, the South one of our sort of pet things. And he thought, oh, I'll catch up with Clark and have a have a coffee. He's clearly out there, you know, communicating this stuff. So, um, be great to connect. And so, um, I don't know if you remember this. A few years ago, you guys caught yep. up. You had a coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. And um, 
it would have been about oh a few months before it all started snowballing for Jacinda. And um, you said to him, you know, you know what, Matthew? I think actually, um, my partner would be really interested in this. You should, um, you should, you should have a coffee with her. And he 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 said, oh nah, nah, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a missed opportunity there, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, pretty wow. classic. But you know, that's something that has come through as well because that's been another really popular thing that people have just been feeling like all of the single-use bottles and containers. It's just like. Why isn't there something more sensible happening there? And so, you know, hopefully this time next year we might have a scheme that we'll be getting our ten cents back or whatever. And yeah, it's not, happened. It happened anyway. It's it's been an, it was Eugenie announced something back in September, didn't she, of last year? So mm. that that's uh, yeah, that's cool. That's encouraging. And I mean, it, just to see how that's played out in other parts of the world where it's been bought in. And it was it Canada's a great poster child for that, where their recycle rates went up to 94% or something. It was outrageous. Yeah, as wow. soon as they put a value on it, it just, everyone got involved and it gave people a source they do. of they income. They get high, it, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and it yeah. cleaned everything up. Hey, Clark, you were speaking earlier about um, that you've been, in some ways, a bit intentional about the career path that you've chosen with your fishing show and how you present things and seeking out these good stories, bringing them to the screen and showing people these beautiful parts of the environment to get some buy-in. I wonder what's your um, what would be like your ultimate hope for what you can do by um, being a TV personality and a, and a media person? What would you hope to be able to change about people's opinions and, and knowledge? It's just... I mean, I've been so lucky and so privileged to have had an outdoorsy life and then been able to find ways to shoehorn my passion into a career um, and and to go and keep exploring places through the Pacific and around New Zealand. And I've and I've probably been I've just been so incredibly lucky that I have free dived off the Three Kings Islands off the top of the North Island and I've been and swam kelp forest down in Stewart Island with huge seals and even bigger power. And I've got to see places and and things that I just I just really wished other New Zealanders could see and that they could mm. um, connect to and it's been really fascinating just this lockdown in the sense that people are locked down in their homes or might be able to travel to work or they might be locked down from work but there's been this massive voice from hunters from people wanting to go on on bushwalks from fishermen and fisherwomen and and everyone else and and it's interesting because there's there is two two there's different groups in New Zealand, but there's a group that do they get it, they understand what it's like, and if we can find ways to make more people get it and see it, then more people are going to care about what's happening to our terakihi stocks on the east coast or um, our our penguin numbers, which are, are struggling um, down in the South Island, or, or why we have why the albatross colony, which has been in, in Otago for a, a long, long time, is still not building its numbers up and, and start to ask those questions. And so if there's a, a way just to, that I can, you know, be privileged and lucky enough to to call it a job and get to go and do those fun things and then some people take something away from it and it starts to make them think differently about things, then that's, a, that's well, I'm, I'm not losing, that's for sure. And I'm putting you on the spot a little bit with this last bit, but I was wondering, considering we are um, still in lockdown and we'll be in sort of a, a bit of a reduced social capacity for a little while, do you have any viewing recommendations after people have polished off all of Fish of the Day <laughs> um, available to watch online? Do you have any favourite nature documentaries or documentarians? Um, I just, it, it is so hard to go past the uh, the iconic 
BBC series, Planet Earth, Blue Planet. I mean, they just they are so far advanced to any other documentary series that has ever been attempted. Um, they're actually they're um, wow. they're they're redoing Blue Planet at the moment. They are. I've seen a pitch document out looking for because they they pitch out for the sequences that they get all the underwater stuff. And they're asking, and they are just, they are wanting the most crazy, extreme, you know, go to the far corners of the earth and film this in the most incredible detail um, synopsis from um, producers and directors and cameramen possible so that they can um, um, even lift the standards even further. So I'm excited about that coming out. So revisiting any of those um, would be a cracker. There's actually um, the, the, the in, uh, is it the NZGO? Uh, New Zealand mm. Geographic website have got some great videos up there, including um, a one up there available online. You just click and watch it by my um, producer who I work, Mike Barner, who's a um, bit of a legend mm. in the game when it comes to shark documentaries and his um, iconic film that he made back in 1996 um, called Marco's was it called? Swift, Smart and Deadly is a, a brilliant shark film shot in New Zealand that's just sitting there for as um, free click, play, and watch on the awesome. um, nzgeo.com website as well. Awesome. Every day can be Shark Day when you got Net Geo on your browser. I tell you what, when you go out with a guy who used to work for um, Shark Week and um, Net Geo and Discovery and everything else, every time you end up in the Pacific and you're supposed to be filming a timid little safe story about catching some little <laughs> coral trout, <laughs> suddenly there's a, a segue into sharks shark. and you're off and chasing bull sharks and they're like, no, not Give more sharks. Give the people what they want. They want sharks. <laughs> It's so exciting to hear they're making more Planet Earth as well. I mean, he, uh, it, 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 look, the other thing that I've been doing lately is listening to um, Sir David's, um, it's actually is an audio book, um, him narrating all, if you're a broadcasting nerd like me, him narrating all of his um, broadcasting career and talking about all of the trials and tribulations and bringing ex- exotic animals back on plane and by sea back to the <laughs> zoo and as part of um, the early stuff he did. It's just, it's a fascinating um, listen. That sounds like the perfect cure for Tiger King. How can how can people connect with it? Uh, well, funnily enough, it was um, I've just done a, a, a campaign for Audible, <laughs> and it was sitting there on their um, website, and so I engaged with it, and it popped up, and I started listening, and I was hooked. That's awesome! I definitely want to listen to that. <laughs> I heard here's a great bit of trivia about David Attenborough. I got off a pub quiz. He um, changed the color of tennis balls. I haven't got to this part in the book, but go on. Oh, well, now I feel like I'm spoiling it. He was such an early figure in pushing the production values of TV and, and trying to do all these incredible things with broadcast technology that when colour television first came out and he was working at the BBC, he saw this opportunity for sports games. But uh, from memory back in the day, the tennis balls were a very similar colour to the court and he made them change the colour so that they would they would strike out more on camera, and he managed to get regulation tennis balls changed. Wow, I, you know what? That will almost certainly be in the book somewhere. I haven't got to that part of it, but um, yeah, he was very much a pioneer pushing that technology as far as it could go because of all that early stuff in the field. I mean, they just had cameras were huge, and they yeah, um, and they were clunky and shooting. They couldn't shoot stuff where it was slightly shaded or dark, and they couldn't carry lights into the bush. So they basically had to build gear to. Um, to shoot in these new environments. And so his, his skills were then parlayed into other projects every time he ended up back in, um, uh, back in Britain. 
And that's totally still going on with planet Earth now. I mean, those shots that they get are just like otherworldly. I can't even imagine the cameras or how they're using them to get some of those shots. Oh, okay. our cameramen have gone gone mad. I say that specifically with a cameraman <laughs> uh, in mind who went mad. He spent seven years trying to shoot the snow leopard sequence, um, and oh and didn't get it. And um, got a combination of altitude sickness and went 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 a bit crazy, um, and oh, and wow. never never really recovered. Like they they, it's just that that endorphin thrill of the chase of capturing something that's never been captured before. Mm. Well, folks, you need to absorb all your nature documentaries because they are coming to you at great personal cost from the producers. <laughs> oh yeah, the um, Mike who I work with, a lot of his colleagues are missing chunks and limbs and whatever he prides himself on the fact that he's he's not had a, a bite out of him having swum with sharks for 30 odd years Jeez Louise. have you got all your bits and bobs i am still fully connected yes <laughs> <laughs> well um clark do you know where people can see the um nat geo campaign for planet or plastic or pop as we're calling it now Pop. Um, I popped a little link to the first one up on um, on my Instagram page. There is a Planet or Plastic page up on the Net Geo site. So yeah, there's, you can find little bits of it online, but mainly it's going to just um, sit as these little video clips that will play on the Net Geo platform through the whole of Asia, Middle East and North Africa. It goes into 83 countries. Clark, thank you so much for joining us on How to Save the World. Um, do you have any any other things that you want to plug while you're here? Should people be following you or you want to shout out a specific campaign to um, get people's school children to write a letter that is illustrated to Cabinet about? <laughs> start, start steering them in the right direction. No, just um, support support local people at a local level that are doing good things. Sustainable Coastlines um, charity that I've been um, supportive of and behind, and I, I love those guys um, for a long, long time, are doing great stuff with coastal cleanups and riparian planting and some of the other work that they're doing. And so just, uh, you know, rather than going for a walk, go and do a beach cleanup, which is just a walk with a rubbish bag. Cool. And it's easy to connect with those guys, right? You don't have to have a group already. Don't you can even I think if um, loveyourcoast.org is still running as a website, you can actually organise your own beach cleanup, and they'll send you sacks and gloves and other advice on how to organise a community beach cleanup. It's really easy. Right. Very appreciative of your time, Clark. Thank you so much for talking to us. That's quite and, all right. And uh, take care. Take care of you and yours. We need that especially right now. <laughs> this is a very important job for you. Let's just get through the next few weeks, and uh, I'll see you at uh, level two or, or below. Sounds good. Indeed. Thanks heaps, Clark. Thanks for having me.